This is Michael Krasny welcoming you to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. And our guest this episode is Tenshin Zenki Reb Anderson, one of the most prominent contemporary Western Zen teachers. Born in Mississippi, he lived in Minnesota until 1967 when he left graduate studies in math and Western psychology to move to San Francisco and study under the celebrated Zen monk Suzuki Roshi, who helped popularize Zen Buddhism in the United States and who ordained Reb Anderson as a priest in 1970 and gave him his Dharma name, which translates to naturally real the whole works. He's been abbot of the three San Francisco Zen training centers and is the author of a number of books, including Being Upright, Zen Meditation, and Bodhisattva Precepts, Entering the Mind of Buddha, Warm Smiles for Cold Mountains, and The Third Turning of the Wheel. And we welcome Tenshin Zenki, Reb Anderson. And we are going to be in conversation, and let's begin. We've both been teachers, you and I, for many years, many decades, in fact. Uh, well, not that many, but certainly you can count them on all fingers. Um, I'm wondering, why are you turning now to conversation as an educational tool as opposed to, I mean, you've been a master. You've been essentially talking to people, lecturing, ruminating verbally, and so forth. That's been the pedagogical tool for the most part, hasn't it? And now. You're talking about conversation. Why? I guess because <clears throat> more and more I, I wake into that the, the real life of wisdom and compassion occurs not from the teacher to the student or the student to the teacher, but in their interaction. So I still give talks, like maybe I give a talk and I talk for a half an hour, but I'm kind of like setting the table for the conversation, put something out there that we can go back and forth on. It's, I think maybe, and also when I'm speaking, actually, people are listening to me and they're actually conversing with me even though they're not saying anything. But in order to understand that, I need to stop talking and let them express themselves, say what they heard, ask questions, tell me the problems that they have, tell me they disagree with me. You know, I kind of struggle to do to be harmoniously, totally engaged with each other. That's where the teaching really comes alive, not just the teacher giving the teaching. And you learn a great deal as a result, especially if you uh, key in listening. Listening is a key here, isn't it? Yeah. So that's become being more of what you're going to be doing in the future? Conversation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like right now, I'm looking forward to you and I doing something together that will be really helpful to people. Well, I hope so as well, although I'm in the role of the interlocutor here, so I'll be asking a lot of the questions. We've got questions coming in, and I think we'll learn from those yeah. who have questions, yeah. and they'll learn certainly from you. The um, Maybe, in fact, you can teach me by starting out by defining for me or giving me the best sense uh, that I can use in a practical way of what true dharma is. I think uh, true dharma is the way everything is working together in actuality. And if we understand the way everything's working together, we, uh, we, know, we bet we know how to relate to our daily life in a way that's beneficial. But if we don't see how things are working together, like in a conversation, if we don't understand that everything is actually a, is a conversation, like you are a conversation and I am a conversation between the whole universe and us, that interaction, I, I think, which we call dependent co-arising, that is the true dharma. And it's ungraspable, and it's radiant, and inconceivable, and it liberates beings from delusion, That seeing that way things work. Does that work even if we're at cross-purposes and we're coming at things from a different angle, so to yeah. speak? Yeah, so... Exactly. That's one of the great things that we can really disagree with each other. But if we understand how we are created, we can be at peace with each other when we disagree, because we're going to continue to disagree. Well, I'm not sure that you and I will disagree that much, but it no. may come to, to pass. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, let me, just for the sake of uh, being the devil's advocate here a little bit, uh, bring up something that may Please, we Be need the devil. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe tantamount to, to a kind of disagreement. No, uh, there, there's the whole idea of practicing compassion is, you know, a cornerstone of so much Buddhist belief and practice and what you have been all about. What do you tell those who feel compassion fatigue? Because it's real. Basically, usually I would say start by resting. Start by resting. 
and and rest until you feel and then when you feel you've rested enough then reconnect with the aspirations which led you to compassion before but when you start again be careful about how you start practicing compassion so we have three kinds of compassion one is called you know we we call it sentimental compassion where you you have feelings of compassion towards yourself and others but you think that the way they are and the way they are suffering is just the way you think they are and just the way you think they're suffering and you think that compassion is what you think it is so practicing compassion according to your own idea of it and attaching to that leads to compassion fatigue but before you listen to what i just said you should take a rest from compassion fatigue until you feel like okay i'm i'm ready to go back and and learn more about compassion but buddha's compassion is not believing that people are what we think they are it's towards people the way they actually are and, and how do we determine that actual sense of what people are by conversation because i have a sense of who you are but you're not what i think you are but what i think you are is part of the conversation and you have a sense of me but i'm not what you think i am and you but by conversing you can free me of my ideas of who you are and vice versa and then we can practice compassion for each other because we won't be attached to what i think's best for you or me that's a splendid way of, uh, of, of, I think, seeing the importance of conversation and breaking down yeah. barriers and yeah, all it's the, rest the only of it. way we can get out of our own view. Uh, also, we've got some questions coming in already. Let me go to some of these, and then I want to come back to some things that are hovering around in my consciousness. But this is from Hasmuk, who's in Cape Town, South Africa. He says, "I've done a few ten-day vipassana courses. It's a technical course on how to meditate. Not spiritual. Works for me. Thoughts or comments?" On my comment, I would like say, yeah. more praise to you. Congratulations. That's great. Well, of course, you come from more of a, uh, there's a still the division between Hinayana and Mahayana Buddhism, and you come from more of a uh, perspective that is divested in spiritual beliefs and, and not, uh, it's practice and spirituality, isn't it? They go together for you. Yeah. I, the, my view of the of the so-called Mahayana, the great vehicle, is that it includes all the individual vehicles. So all the like the gentleman who just recited, he's doing his own practice and he finds it works, and he is included in the great vehicle, his practice. But I would also say to him that in order to bring what he's finding working to fruition to its maturity, it would be good if he took his practice and then entered into conversation with others about it and saw that his practice included other people's practice who are not practicing Buddhism. Another question uh, comes from Reed up in Santa Rosa. What insights can Buddhism offer to those of us who feel disturbed by world events, politics, and climate change? Big question. Yeah. So one of, one of the things that I've been contemplating lately is I feel the world is in great suffering. We have great crises, so much cruelty. I feel that. That's where I'm at, is in a world like that. That's where I live, in that world. And there is also a world, or a way of life, which is full of kindness and compassion and peace. And I want to foster that realization of peace and harmony among humans and all animals and plants. So, I have to be careful to be aware that I'm discriminating between what's going on with me now and the world I wish for, or the person I am now and the person I wish to be. I'm, I'm, make, I'm probably making a discrimination between the two. And if I cling to that discrimination, I keep myself in this world, because this is the world of discrimination. And the world of freedom and peace is a world that doesn't hold any discrimination and it's called, called non-discriminating wisdom. But non-discriminating wisdom does not mean I don't discriminate. It means I don't attach to my discriminations. 
It means I'm curious about my own discriminations and my curiosity about my discriminations between this world of suffering and a world of peace. That promotes the realization of peace. But there is the Buddhist underlying belief that suffering is our fate, isn't there? That the dukkhas are what we have to deal with on a constant yes. basis. We, we do have to deal with that's the world we live in. We live in a world where we're offered continuous suffering. And this suffering is calling to us to listen to it and look at it with compassion. And dealing with that world of suffering and not attaching to the process of compassion brings the realization of peace right in the midst of the world of suffering. It brings the, the medicine into the sickness before the sickness departs. But I'm, I'm also uh, sort of focused on the notion that uh, world affairs can be a distraction from the real dharma, and yet the world affairs are so much with us. The world is so much with us, you know, literally and figuratively. And you think of Gaza, you think of... Uh, What's going on in Israel before that, and uh, you also think about Ukraine, climate change as the listener brought into the picture here. How, how do you find that balance? I mean, aside from conversation and trying to find a way to navigate it, how do you find that balance? Well, I would say not aside from conversation. I would say I would have conversation with all the things you mentioned, that all, all those things you brought up, I don't see them as distractions from the Dharma. I see them as opportunities for conversation, and the conversation with these things will bring peace. What about opportunities for action? You know, I'm thinking about, there's a Carol Churchill play you might know where a Buddhist decides he's not going to go and save people from burning in a fire because actions don't mean anything. And, you know, my taking action at this point, I mean, it's absurd, obviously, but my taking action at this point would be irrelevant in the grand scheme of things and the suffering that we all have to endure. I think if a Buddha was confronted with a person in, uh, you know, in flames, they would do their best to help that person by taking action. And they would know how. And they would have skillful ways of doing it because of their wisdom. They would do their best to help that person so the wisdom is in action, then, you're saying? The wisdom is in action, yes. And reflection and meditation, but also action. And also knowing what the skillful thing to do is, rather than just acting, seeing what would be helpful. And so one's life skills can be applied in so many different ways, but what if one is simply bereft of those skills or simply doesn't ever have some kind of handicap that negates those skills? Okay, so I may feel, again, I may feel right now, I am bereft of the skills of wisdom. That's the way I may feel. And many people do say that. You must hear that all the time. Sure. Yeah, you say them all the time, yeah. So that's it. So then we listen to that and converse with that and free that person who thinks they're bereft of wisdom. We free them from attaching to that idea. And when they're free from that idea that they're bereft of wisdom, they will be, they will be wise. But they, they need a conversation with somebody who doesn't say, you're not, you're not bereft of wisdom. Let's, you know, what do you mean by that? You know, and are you, and are you being compassionate to your, to your lack of wisdom? Are you welcoming your lack of wisdom? Are you being patient with your lack of wisdom? And then we have a conversation so we don't get stuck in our view, I lack wisdom. But we can still have that idea. I can think I lack wisdom. But I don't want to get stuck there. And yet there are people who believe they lack wisdom because they lack wisdom. <laughs> I mean, yes. I'm sorry to be so blunt about it, but no, I suspect right. that they, is definitely true across many different yeah. cultures and civilizations. Yes. So the key is when they lack wisdom because they actually do lack wisdom, that's a discrimination. And that discrimination should be inquired. We should have a conversation about that. We should be curious about, the, curious about what you just said. What do you mean by that? The people who think they're lacking in wisdom really are lacking in wisdom. Do you actually like? I suspect, wouldn't you, Reb? There are people who are just obtuse or myopic or, you know, uh, not very wise in the sense of uh, 
having the potential for wisdom? I think everybody has the potential for wisdom, and they have to look at their ignorance in order to discover it. Oh, that reminds me of something else you once said about uh, remembering and aspiration and how important those two elements are for for advancement spiritually. Um, Yeah. That's that's wisdom. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Our energy comes from reviewing your aspiration. So sometimes when, sometimes you may feel, you know, I'd like to help that person, but I'm just too tired. I say, well, rest. And when you're rested, then go back and look at your aspiration, which is to help that person. But sometimes you don't have, you're just completely worn out and you need a, you need a rest. Oh, go ahead, rest. And when you're ready, come back and look at the fact that you do want to help people, but you have to look at that for a while until you feel like, well, actually, that, that would really be good. I would love to. And now your energy starts coming back to go back to work helping people. But we do run out of energy sometimes. The source of spiritual energy often is the aspiration and the remembrance it is. of it. Yeah. That's yeah. where it comes from. Yeah. But you have to go back to that well on a regular basis and look at it and look at it until you feel like, yeah, it really would be good to do what I aspire to good. I'm feeling energized. I'm going back to work. But we, and then after a while, you get tired again. Well, that's just mindfulness in a way, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mindfulness of what you aspire to will bring you energy to, to act it out, I think to that's practice a, it. I think that's true. And uh, yeah. we've got Juan from Mexico City who wants to know what your thoughts are on why tolerance is so hard to come by in our many cultures. Yeah. Uh, why is it so hard to come? I think that uh, part of the reason I think tolerance may be difficult is that um, some preliminary practices have not been done. For example... Tolerance usually is often applied to something uncomfortable or painful. We find, we find what we're doing or somebody else is doing painful. Or we find our own physical illness painful. So before we try to actually go and practice tolerance with it, I, I usually would recommend starting with being generous towards that which we're having trouble being tolerant of generous towards my own pain, which means welcoming it, not liking it, but welcoming it, letting it come into the house. And then once I really let my own pain or other people's pain into my life, then be respectful of it. You know, honor it. Don't try to get rid of it. Don't try to kill it. And then when you've set the stage, then you can like try to be in the present with this pain, with this discomfort. You're taking you on other to... people's pain? Hmm? You're internalizing and taking on other people's pain to be more tolerant? Not exactly internalizing it, but when somebody brings me pain, I try to say welcome to their pain. I try to welcome the person who's in pain. I try to let them be in my life. And then I try to respect them, which includes being careful of them and not trying to get rid of their pain, but respecting it and being trying to and, and getting ready to be with it. Because what I want to help them do is be tolerant of their own pain, because that will help them become free of it. If I can't become tolerant and patient with my own pain, I will be subjugated by it. But that doesn't mean you have to feel the pain of the other, does it? Or does it? I'm, op- I'm opening to the pain of others, which is different from exactly feeling it. And I have my own feelings when I open to other people's suffering. I might get scared when somebody brings me their suffering. If I open to it and I welcome it into my life, I might have my own feeling of fear that I won't be able to help them. I, have my, I might be have afraid that they're going to hurt me because they're in so much suffering. It's my pain. I have to practice my own welcoming with my own pain in order to help them practice with theirs. Which prompts me to ask you also, what do you do when you show respect and kindness and tolerance towards someone and it's not given back reciprocally? In fact, if anything, in some instances, they disrespect you. How do you Exactly. That's very common. So then I then... (laughs) (laughs) I want to welcome their disrespect. 
welcome their disrespect. Yeah, welcome. How does one welcome I like disrespect? It. Doesn't mean I like it. It's just welcome. You can be here, disre- person who's disrespecting me. You're welcome here too. I. It's not just people that respect me that get to meet me. Those who disrespect me almost are more welcome. And then when I welcome them, I want to respect that person and not try to get rid of them. And then I can be patient with the pain of their disrespecting me because it might hurt. And what if it's animus or hostility? How does that translate to you and your wisdom? I aspire to welcome hostility when it comes towards me. I aspire to that. And that aspiration comes from what source? What is the wisdom for I think, well, I've seen, I was attracted to Zen by seeing examples of people who, when attacked or when treated hostily, could be could be gracious and and have a sense of humor while they were being attacked. And I saw that and I said, I want to learn to do that. So you taught yourself? I, I didn't teach myself to do it. I did a practice which opened me to do that. Uh, important yeah. distinction, the practice is key. The practice is key. Yeah. Yeah. And I learned that those people who are able to respond to hostility with generosity and openness and a sense of humor, that they did a lot of meditation where they dealt with their own pain and learned how to open to their own pain and be respectful of their own pain and be tolerant of their own pain and find out that that really is liberating. Is there also a way to, I don't know, set up a kind of hierarchy of pain? Uh, do you do that at all? I mean, when you have yes, your, your own pain <laughs> against the pain of someone you love or someone who you don't even know that well, or you know, how do you, how do you establish that hierarchy? Um, I aspire to give my compassion to what's ever in my face. That's what I aspire to in the moment. In the moment, yeah. and if it's a small, if it, some people <laughs> have little tiny pain, it seems, and they're complaining about it, I aspire to give them my whole heart and my whole compassion, even though they're kind of not suffering very much by most people's standards, and they're also complaining about it. That can be annoying, you know. You think about some. You yeah. think about all the suffering that's well, so annoying, profound. Yeah. No, annoying is. Annoying is what we deal with when we're meditating. When we're meditating, we're annoyed a lot with our own body and mind. We are really annoyed when we're sitting. It's it's really boring is annoying. So we we work, when we're meditating, we deal with a lot of annoyance just of our own being. So we get good at dealing with annoying, this this annoying person. So when we meet other people, we have a chance of being as tolerant and patient with them as we've learned to be with our own annoying being. Well said. And Zen means meditation, and there are so many varieties of Zen meditation. Um, there's so many. There's infinite varieties. It makes uh, sometimes a little bit complicated for those who are aspiring to learn about Zen meditation. Yeah. So many different cultures, so many different forms. So many forms. different cultures. Yeah. yeah. Any advice? Well, I would say, (laughs) sorry, welcome them all. Welcome them all and respect them all. Welcoming and respecting you keep coming back to as a kind of universal. It even suggests a kind of embracing. Exactly. Exactly. It's a starting point. And you were talking before about sitting. Sitting can actually be a major starting point, can't it? Exactly. And the sitting is is a place where we're sitting there trying to welcome what's happening with our own body and mind, which is not easy. No, it's not. No. It's, it can be very I tried trying, it. very taxing. Yeah, I, I heard about that. I heard these stories about these great people, and I heard that they did this sitting practice. So I tried it, and I found it to be really hard. And so that's why I thought, well, maybe if I had a place where I was practicing with other people, they could support me to do this kind of hard thing. And so I went to San Francisco Zen Center and practiced with those people. And sure enough, with their help and Suzuki Roshi's help, I could do this difficult thing on a regular basis rather than once a month. And you left, um, well, you you have an unusual background in that uh, born in Mississippi, as I said in the introduction, and then uh, left 
graduate studies, I guess, to uh, go seek what you just pretty much outlined for us. But your father abandoned you. Do I have that right? Uh, as a yeah, as a kid, well, he, he 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 divorced my mother, but I kept in touch with him. He was particularly in touch with me around sports. Still, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, he he came to he not only did he come to all my football games, he came to the practices too. So that's right. You were a football player and a Golden Glove boxer. I mean, yeah. not normally what people would associate with. Uh, no, right. With with a monk, or for that matter, uh, monks. There's the 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 Buddhist way welcomes boxers and wrestlers. <laughs> well, the Buddhist way welcomes just about everybody, really, doesn't yeah, it? Exactly. So even me, <laughs> even you. Uh, here, back to teaching and and. Uh, conversation, Chris in Tempe, Arizona says, as a researcher on teaching, my colleagues and I have learned that authentic conversation among teachers is a powerful form of lifelong professional development. Does this consist, seem consistent with your exactly, views? Exactly. And it, it's, a, I think she said among colleagues, is that right? He said. Conversation yeah. among colleagues? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, among colleagues, yes, but also among Juniors among beginners and intermediates, that all of that is is development of our art, but definitely include the colleagues. Well, speaking of colleagues, I, I know a Zen priest who will not be named here because of what <laughs> I'm going to tell you, um, who is a good friend and someone I love. Um, recently, someone told me that they were in a car with him, and there was an, uh, a car that cut them off, and he kind of lost his temper and. He said, what kind of way is that for a Zen priest to behave was what he was asked. But you're all mortal. You all have these kinds of responses. Uh, yeah. how, how do you deal with them, though, on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, the first thing is acknowledge them. Acknowledge them. And then, again, let them into your life. And then check to see if you feel kind of sorry that you did this petty thing or this impatient thing or this intolerant thing see if you feel sorry if you feel sorry say you're sorry doesn't it doesn't have to be anybody around just say i'm sorry this is not the way i want to behave yeah easier said than done sometimes i was easier just easier said than done it's not an easy practice i was just thinking about a time when i got cut off and uh honked my horn and the guy gave me a obscene gesture and there was something in me that wanted to go after him i had to realize that this was a primitive kind of response back to my proletarian boyhood, but you know, I had to deal with it. I had to navigate through it. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And, and how wonderful here it is again to be dealt with compassionately. When you were young, you, you didn't know how to deal with it. Now you can be compassionate with it. Sometimes. And you may, <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Yes. And if, and if you're compassionate, that's the way. And if you're not, they say, I wasn't very compassionate to myself just there. I was petty, and I and then I was mean to myself for being petty, rather than welcome, darling Michael. <laughs> you have to be kind to yourself too, not just other people. To. Really, yeah. You have to. If I'm not kind to myself, I won't be kind to you. Here's Bill from Boise, Boise, Idaho. What is the difference between Dharma and Karma? <laughs> between Dharma and Karma? Yes. World of dharma difference. is the truth of karma. Dharma is how karma works. And if you see the dar if you see the karma, if you see the dharma and the karma, you're free of karma. That's very succinct and, and cogent. I like the way you put that. Um, there's there are those who say though that people who were brought up in places like Mississippi and Minnesota and who were golden glove boxers and football players and everything. They can't really be as steeped in Eastern tradition as those who literally grow up in it or you know, were born into it and so forth. I mean, you've heard that argument probably. I have, yeah. And what do you say to that? Because you say it should welcome everybody, and I agree with you. It should welcome everybody. Yeah. Well, I, I would say Buddhism does welcome all those people, and, and I also would welcome the people who made the comment you just made. They're welcome too. <laughs> you know, and I, I pray that they don't attach to that view. Because if they attach to their view, then they close the door on Buddhism. So if I think those people are not worthy to practice Buddhism, they don't have a chance. Okay, that I, I respect that thought, but I don't want to attach to it. Because if I attach to the thought that they're not ready, 
I can have the thought they're not ready, and that could be, and that could be true. Is they're not ready, but if I attach to the thought that they're not ready, I close the door on the Dharma. What about the argument that Buddhism has become too Westernized? Though you hear that as well, don't you? Popular culture has tainted yeah. it in many ways. Perhaps I hear that. Yeah, that it's become. I hear that, and I and again, I respect that view. People who have that view, I respect them. Yeah, some of my best friends have that view that it's become too westernized. And I respect that. But I don't grasp that that's true. That's just a point of view. That's one of many points of view. And that point of view is asking for my compassion. And it's deserving of conversation. <laughs> it's deserving of, it's calling for conversation. Yes. Let me converse with you about something else. When we talk about the universe and all of the interdependency of beings and so forth, Sometimes, just as a layperson, I try to get my head around even imagining a hundred people at the same time in my, in my cerebral mind or whatever you want to call it. And it's difficult to get your mind around, let alone all of these beings that we are connected with, billions upon billions of them. Can you give me some dollop of wisdom on that? How do we get our heads around all of these beings that we're supposed to be interconnected with? Well, I have one being here who I'm aware of, and that that being is having any problems with the teaching about these infinite beings, if that person's having problems, I take care of that person who is me. And if I'm talking to somebody, another person, who's got that problem, we together take care of that person and have a conversation like you're doing with me right now about this issue. And then we can learn to, to, to converse through the difficulties that occur when we open to such a large scale. Some problems will not show up until we open to this really large scale. And when they do, then we converse about the problems that occur when we open to that level of, 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 of meditation. And you can bring in the macrocosm as well as you the bring macrocosm. Bring in the macro. Yeah. You, you open to it, you say, welcome macrocosm. And then you also deal with the microcosmic responses when you open to the macro. People have one of the main microcosmic, so one of the main microcosmic responses to opening to the macro is to get scared. Another one is to think that it's silly. The macrocosmic is just ridiculous. That, but that's a human response to take care of. Well, with all the emphasis on human suffering in Buddhism, can we talk about joy? Where, where's the, uh, the, I mean, aside from laughter, where does the joy come from? How does one find joy? Again, going back to being generous, with being generous and gracious, graciously receiving suffering beings into our life brings great joy. It is, it is the most joyful thing to be gracious to suffering. But we're not, try, we're not being gracious to suffering. We're not welcoming and opening to suffering to get joy, because if we do, that's not really being gracious. That's trying to buy joy. But when we really open to suffering, it is the greatest joy. Not the suffering, the openness to it and the generosity towards it. And that joy supports us to move forward and to get more involved with the suffering, to be more respectful of it and careful of it and patient with it. But we need joy to start this process of engaging with suffering, with our own suffering and other suffering. You probably can't know joy unless you have suffering, isn't that, isn't that what you're what? saying? You can't know joy unless you know suffering. You can't know the highest quality joy unless you yeah. know suffering. And yet there are those who clearly wallow in suffering and seem to be in, yeah, unable to escape those who wallow the wallowing. So generosity is not with suffering is not wallowing in it. It's opening to it. It's welcoming it. It's respecting it. It's being patient with it. It's not wallowing. Wallowing is a distraction from being intimate with the suffering and realizing freedom. That requires a great deal of patience, doesn't it? Like infinite patience. Yeah, the patience is a tolerance. Yeah. Yeah, but we, I, we usually lead up to the patience by, first of all, being gracious. gracious. The patience is based on the on, needs to joy and enthusiasm of graciousness to do the hard work of patience, of being there with the suffering. 
I remember interviewing some Rinpoches, and they would just burst into laughter suddenly, you know, and say, this is what one has to feel. This is where one has to be in one's being. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's one, another thing that struck me about Zen was these people have a sense of humor. And people thank me, not so much for my wisdom and compassion, but they thank me for my sense of humor. Yeah, I've seen your sense of humor, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I certainly find it refreshing and give you kudos on that. Um, Suzuki Reishi said, what we're doing is far too important to be taken seriously. <laughs> well, but Buddhism is a very serious discipline. It's so serious. It's so serious. It's really serious. I mean, I remember it's the story so about serious. the Buddha. You know that uh, you know all these stories, I'm sure, but the yeah. one where he goes out with a beggar's bowl and uh, somebody drops a finger into the bowl, but that's still a generous offering, and so he takes the finger in. Uh, I mean, yeah. mendicant monks do this, right? They take whatever is given to them and they they accept it. Uh, they tolerate it. Whatever you want to describe as it being. Yeah, and another story which I haven't heard before is on that occasion when they drop the finger in, the person breaks into you know what is it called gut gut wrenching laughter at this uh, ob ob obscene situation, <laughs> and there is freedom from this obscene situation. Can the suffering be funny? Can it give humor? It can be funny, but we it the the humor comes from fully accepting the suffering and not and respecting it, like a like a you know like what do you have a, a setup and a punchline of a joke? The setup is not funny, but you have to accept the setup in order to get the punchline. And suffering is like the setup for the joke. Can you give us some sense of how people can be more within the moment? In the here and now. In the moment. One of the things that first comes to mind is if somebody feels that they're not in the moment, to welcome feeling not in the moment. If I feel not in the moment, if I feel distracted, and I'm with that distraction, and gracious to the distraction, I have become less distracted. If I try to push the distraction away, I'm more distracted. So once again, we're back to welcoming, the welcoming of what we're seems to, to be illogical or antithetical. Yeah. yeah. Being, gener being generous towards my lack of presence, being generous towards my own distraction, I become more present and, and more calm. Uh, a question from our own Alex. Can there be joy without suffering? I think so. Yeah. But the joy that's there without suffering will very likely go away when the suffering comes. We go to some more questions. Again, we go to Cape Town and uh, Hasmuk, uh, who says, it is said that we are all born miserable and life's journey is seeking happiness. What is your definition of happiness? I would say my definition of happiness is peace. And maybe I have to ask you, how do you define peace? I would say being in harmony with all beings. So that's another definition of happiness, to be in harmony with all beings. And <clears throat> the Buddha teaches that we are already in harmony with all beings, but we are born ignorant of it. Our eyes are closed to it. And so we need to open our eyes to see the harmony. And that is happiness. I have to ask you, and uh, it's a big question again, where does evil play a role here, or what is the role of evil here, especially when we think of harmony with all beings? There are people who are evil. I think, you know, what comes to my mind, evil is, uh, is ignoring, is turning away from our life. The word evil is L-I-V-E, backwards. Yeah, it's an anagram. It's a theological word, but I think we all understand what evil is. Like pornography, we know it when we see it. Yeah. So evil is living our life backwards. Evil is ignoring our life. And most people do ignore their life. They see their life through their own conceptual lens. That's why we need conversation to free us from our own conceptual lens, which is covering life as it actually is. So I would say evil is ignorance. It's ignoring and, and adhering to our, our, our conceptual lens as reality is evil. And then we can do terrible things based on that. I'm also thinking about 
solipsism. Uh, I don't yeah. know if it necessarily exactly. is evil, but you know, people who I can't say, get beyond their own subjectivity, their own way of seeing things or experiencing things, and can't I would say, be compassionate yeah, or empathic. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, adhering, grasping a solipsistic view—that is evil. I would agree. So, yeah. how can we make harmony with those beings who are solipsistically evil? Find a way to get them to talk to us. Find a way to have a conversation with them. Like, you know, sincerely tell them how great they are. <laughs> <laughs> and, and surprise them with all kinds of generosity and good spirit so they'll start talking to us about their solipsistic view. And so we can ask them some questions and get them to be curious about this view which they have no curiosity about. But if we're generous with solipsists, that may just make them feel contemptuous of us or disrespectful. Might that maybe, and 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 then we can see, we can we can we can work with that and watch them. They can see us how we deal with them being having contempt for us. There's read again. Does the Buddhist understanding of impermanence embody the concept of entropy and the inevitability of the dissolution of the earth itself? Excuse me for saying this, but I just saw a really good talk on YouTube called Entropy, the most misunderstood concept in physics. <laughs> so a lot of people think entropy, entropy is the way high energy maybe goes to lower energy. Or just That's winds down. It. it just winds down. Winds down. Yeah. But there's also a, the conservation of energy, that energy is neither created nor destroyed. So it does wind down, but it also winds up again. So people can watch that YouTube on entropy, that entropy isn't just winding down, it's also reloading. The universe is in an endless cycle. I like what, what, what you say. I just don't know if it, if it squares with my idea of uh, physics and, and what entropy represents. Yeah, well, that, that, that's what I said, that a lot of people, this, 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 a lot of people misunderstand entropy. They think it's just one directional, but it's actually pulsing. It's cyclical. I, I, cyclical. I, I read what you're saying, and that's, yeah. we don't know enough necessarily to yeah. assume one way or the other, but I think entropy and the winding down is real, and I think the it's planet real. may be... It's real. The winding down is real. Yeah. The, the planet may be impermanent, too. I mean, with carbon and so many other things, who knows what's going to hit us from outer space or nuclear weapons and so forth. Impermanence is the very foundation of Buddhism, though, isn't it? It's the foundation. It's the foundation, yep. We're in flux. And Everything's in flux. Well, everything, everything, <laughs> everything is, uh, uh, everything that's put together is impermanent. But things that aren't put together are not impermanent. It's just things that are compounded, they fall apart. But the fact that, but that fact of impermanence is kind of permanent. The permanence of impermanence is our state of being. The teaching, the teaching of impermanence yeah. is kind of permanent, but that teaching is not put together. Yeah, it's just the way things are. I mean, it sounds paradoxical, but it also sounds it authentic. Paradoxical. It sounds real. Ex yeah. Exactly. And and that gets me to a, a question that I wanted to ask you, and that is, how do you determine what is real from what is meretricious or false or counterfeit or simply not real? Just wondering if the Buddha has some wisdom on that for us about what Buddha, is real. The Buddha did see what's real, and the Buddha also saw what is not real. So the Buddha saw that the way we see things usually is not real. Right. These are not the, not the way we see them to be. It's maya. It's illusion. It's illusion. Yeah. And, and practicing compassion and concentration and wisdom with maya opens the door to what is true. It Which is, is suffering is real. Suffering is real, and, op and opening, and Buddha didn't realize, sometimes people translate the first noble truth as there is suffering, but it's more that Buddha saw the truth of suffering. Buddha practiced compassion with suffering and discovered the truth in the suffering, through suffering. Suffering is a door to what is true. Suffering is a door to what is true. I want to cogitate on that a bit, but thank you. Me that. too. Yeah. <laughs> Another question from South Africa. You have mentioned attachment more than once. Can you provide context to this notion of attachment? I, I can give an example. Is that I think something, and then I 
I make a discrimination between myself and somebody else, and then I actually believe that's true and hold that to be true, and I'm rigid about it and not open to be curious about that idea of separation. So attachment is not curiosity. Attachment is grabbing things the way they appear. But attachment undermines us, doesn't it, for the most part? They lead to more suffering. The basic definition of a suffering is attaching to our feelings, our ideas, our emotions, our body. That's the basic definition of suffering. Yeah. Attaching to what we think, that's the basic definition of suffering. And what many of us uh, who study Buddhism uh, opt for or aspire to is a kind of extinction. That's what nirvana is, is extinction, isn't it? You don't suffer anymore when you extinguish your ontology, I myself, your being. I, I myself do not aspire to uh, extinction. I don't mean death I, extinction. I mean extinction I of do, consciousness. I, I, I do not aspire to that. Maybe that's maybe somebody does, and I, I want to be their friend too. But I'm not aspiring to extinction of consciousness. What I'm aspiring to is to realize peace, nirvana, and the suffering of our world that they're completely inseparable. That's what I aspire to realize. But when you speak of peace, I think of uh, that poem, which is perhaps one of the great poems of the 20th century, The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. He talks about the peace which passeth understanding. Yeah. That's nirvana? You can say that's nirvana, yeah. Huh. However, and that's great, right? Yeah. Sounds great. But that's not where I'm primarily concerned. I'm concerned with that peace which passes all understanding and the suffering which is also inconceivably horrible because I don't want to push people over towards nirvana. I want to have them realize that nirvana, the place they want to go, is not separate from where they are. That's what I aspire to realize. And here's Susan from San Diego who says, could you say that suffering exists in the space between our constructive reality and reality itself? I would say it exists in that space, yes, between. I think the suffering is like being struck in our constructed and not opening up for the conversation with the unconstructed. The conversation does come back over and over, doesn't it? Yeah. So yeah. we have the constructed, and that's where the suffering is living. And we need to set up a conversation between the constructed suffering world and the unconstructed world of happiness and freedom. I, I want to get those two in conversation. Can I ask you how you connect happiness and freedom? Or well, before I said understanding, understanding the Dharma is understanding the way things work, the way things actually come to be. And understanding suffering the way it comes to be is understanding the Dharma, and it is becoming free of the suffering without getting rid of it. We're free in the understanding of it. Understanding suffering means what to you? Again, the thing I come back to is understanding suffering is to understand that it's not separate from peace and happiness. That's understanding suffering. But I, in order to understand that not the way suffering is not separate from what I hope for the world, I have to be curious about suffering. I have to be in conversation with all my, all my own sufferings and all the sufferings of other people. I need to be in conversation with that. That's what opens me to realize that this suffering is not separate from what we all want. I'm getting a glimmering here, and I'd like to hear what you have to say if I ask you to describe what your hope is for the world. My hope for the world is that everybody will wake up to reality. And in waking up to reality, they will be at peace and harmony with all other beings. They will be able to be compassionate with their enemies and with themselves. That's my hope for this world. It's also a hope for peace, really, it's the way you've described it. It's a hope for peace. We've got to wake but, up first, though. Right? We're dreaming, or we're in a nightmare. Waking maybe. up is part of the deal. <laughs> in order to have peace, we have to wake up to peace not really being separate from war. We have to wake up to that. And that's really hard to wake up to. But in order to wake up to it, we have to be compassionate towards all warring beings. In addition to compassion, what else 
Would you mention? In addition to compassion? To wake us up. Yeah. What else? Inquiry, conversation, look into it, inquire about it, ask questions about it, tell people what we think about it and, and ask for their feedback. That's the wisdom part. The conversation is the wisdom part. Compassion makes it possible to have a conversation. And can you give me a sense of uh, when someone knows they have attained wisdom or how they know they have acquired wisdom? Is that just enlightenment or what does that mean? Um, I would, when, it seems to me that the people who have wisdom are freed of being concerned about whether they have it or not. <laughs> so if, you, if you're not concerned anymore about whether you have it or not, that, that's good. But still, that's, that's for people who aspire very wholeheartedly to realize wisdom. For those who wish to realize wisdom, for those who realize, wish to realize Buddhahood, one of the things that they would be free of is knowing whether they have attained it or not. So when Buddhas are really Buddhas, they don't go around thinking, I'm Buddha. They're just Buddhas. And that means they've attained it if they don't think they've attained it or don't obsess yeah, and, about and attaining people, it. People come up to them and say, oh my God, you're a Buddha. And they say, really? That's great. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that. But they're just walking around just, you know, embracing suffering. You know, they're just welcoming and being careful and compassionate with all beings. They're Buddhas. That's what they do for a living. They don't usually go around thinking, I'm Buddha doing this. But if you ask them, who are you anyway? They say, well, I guess I'm Buddha. <laughs> I don't usually think about it, but I guess that's my name, Mr. Buddha or Miss Buddha. Well, I will call you Buddha in concluding here <laughs> rather than... Rob Anderson, and it's really been delightful talking to you. I want to also thank all who were with us this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny and all of you who will be listening to it in the future on Apple or Spotify or on our website at graymatter.show where you can also sign up for membership. Thanks to the great Gray Matter team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, and Jeff, and a thank you to this week's special guest, Tension Zenki, Reb Anderson. Thank Krasny. you for the conversation, Michael. Good conversation. Thank you. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.